August 14, 2021. So a lot from Pedro Show. Thank <laughs> you. 
Pappy with a khaki sweatband, old, bowed, pot-bellied barnyard that only he noticed. The old fart was smart. These words were my calling card, used as defense against squares throughout northern New Jersey in the early years of the 1970s. Encanted while playing pinball, they sometimes piqued the interest of teenaged hipster chicks, lollygagging around the bowling alley. Spoken in the classroom, or the dining hall, or locker room, they were more a way of creating a bubble of badness to protect me from the goddamn normals who dogged my every sullen step, trying to impress me with words and gestures I could not understand. But the poetry of Captain Beefheart, at first even more than his music, got under my skin and laid eggs that have continuously erupted. I would never be fool enough to say I enjoyed all the captain's bands or records or tours, but most of them were fine beyond belief, providing a glimpse of something so weird yet apparently sustainable that it was a balm to my soul and also to the souls of the many other losers who I would come to enjoy and respect over the next decades of my life, years that would have been far bleaker, perhaps even devoid of splendor, without the model he provided. So let this stand as a toast to the ghost most holio, imperfectly human, yet unblemished, as a saint to the disaffected youth who found sense and succor in his vision of things as they might be, and perhaps even as they truly were. You know what I mean? Good night, Don. Good night. Off from Pedro Show. Happy Saturday. We're playing Pedro a little later today. It's uh, Pizzo and Jerzo, second man. Saturday. Uh, started off the show, John Coltrane, live in Seattle, 1965, Evolution. Uh, Donald Garrett, I think, sometimes bass clarinet, sometimes the other, like there's two basses, so I can't remember exactly what he's doing here. But uh, incredible record. Rumor is, yeah, Mr. Coltrane was on uh, L, but there's other stories about him reviewing the gig and stuff and uh, why it was underway and somebody tripping balls, unless it isn't very together that way. After that, Beefheart from Byron Coley. Uh, Brother Matt, I love Grotto. Soon we're going to be reunited, though. But I'm not totally man alone because of those... Estonian software engineers with their Skype invention. I got Mr. Byron Cole. Welcome aboard, Brother Byron. <laughs> and are you uh, reaching out? Uh, yeah, Western Mass. Western Mass. Okay. In my, uh, in my TV room. <laughs> okay, TV room. That's better than the name of the town. What's Jay? Amherst? Yeah. Yeah, Jay's in Amherst. But, you know, it's all like Western Mass... It's one of those areas like the towns in a kind of way don't really matter. We're in this river valley here right. and everything that's in the river valley kind of flows together. In fact, there's a bunch of colleges there, right? There are a bunch of colleges there, which is what oh, the reason I came out to this area my first time I ever did. And then, uh, yeah, it's let's, good. Let's look talking about the way back machine. Let's fucking venture into it. Please bring your earliest musical recollection. My earliest musical recollection was, uh, well, I mean, uh, you're talking about listening to the radio or seeing a band or what any, kind of Any stuff? kind of musical recollection. Remember, it's the Watford Pedro show. There's no hard questions. There's no wrong answers. Well, I mean, the thing is, the first uh, album I ever bought was uh, 
Hey Little Cobra and other Hot Rod hits by the Rip Chords. Now that's just with a your, little. That's with your little, own little, money, though, right? Yeah, with my own money. Okay. You know, my my parents had bought me like you know. No, but I always ask the question on the, the show for the last twenty years. What's the first record you bought with your own money? Because when you're a kid, you ain't got a lot of money. So no, I bought that with my own money. I'd gotten, uh, I'd saved up. You know, you get like little bits and pieces. This is really before uh, allowance kicked in. I mean, this is like sixty, early sixty-four. So like pre-Beatles, and uh, you know, uh, my I had a babysitter who was really into this record. And uh, Hey Little Cobra, and I was like, oh man, this is a great record. I was maybe it's like third grade, I think. So you don't have yeah. any musical memories before buying your first record. Well, like I, I have mean, some dudes on the show, they can remember being in their mom's womb while they're driving around in the car. You know, the thing is, my parents were not music people at all. Um, like my dad, like they had a, one of those hi-fi stereos, like, you know, the, the old console, big Months? kind of mahogany thing. Yeah, it's like a I, whatever, Marantz. Like Hans Marantz, Marantz or something like that. And they would like, their big thing was playing like crappy like uh, he had this, he had an album of a cover version of the soundtrack for On the Beach, you know, the the Neville Shoot thing about the like when the atomic bomb goes off, and the first, so I can really remember like lying in there in the room, like waiting to hear the part where the atomic bomb goes off. Like my dad would go, like that's the part where the atomic bomb goes off, and I'd be like, oh, it's so cool. There's records like that. I remember, like, uh, General MacArthur's Retire or Farewell, you know. Yeah, yeah. Never fade. Right. Yeah, these, these were like records. Who the fuck would buy some shit like that? You know, I once, the first time I the first time I went to visit John Fahey in Salem, Oregon, in his motel room, when I walked into the room, he was playing that MacArthur record. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Although he was playing it on tape. He had to ta- tape the thing. And he was playing it really, really loud. My ma told me that was a huge fucking hit. Yeah, you know, I mean, for a certain generation, that was like... Uh, <laughs> I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, it, <laughs> it was dirt dirty, but she didn't like him. Uh, uh, let me ask you this. First gig you went and saw. Uh, it's Us opening for the Left Bank at the Kinnelon yeah, High School. What's that? Don't Walk Away, Renee. Walk Away, Renee, Pretty Ballerina. I think they called that Baroque Rock. They did. I didn't really know what to call it, but it was like I was going because <laughs> it was a, that. <laughs> a, a friend of mine's brother's band was opening. But I mean, I wanted to go. Oh, I would have gone anyway. It was the where I lived. There were not many shows, especially that you could go to if you were like not you know, we were a little kid. Yeah. So this yeah. is like, you know, I think it was probably spring of 67 or what town? late what 66. Town? Kinnelon, New Jersey. OK, it's like a little California turned the other way. When I look at the license plate. Yeah. You yeah. gave me this thing. Orchid Spang. Orchid Spangiophora. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Trapped <laughs> hair. Sweet. Yeah. And yeah. not just not just any part, but part two. Well, <laughs> 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 Moose, <laughs> 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 <
Mar- Marvin Welch and Farrar. It's yeah. good stuff. What, uh, well, these big one was Apache. But, uh, yeah. Watt Speedler show that chunk of music started off with Orchid Spang- Spangiophora, part two, the Trapped Hair Suite. Then we had uh, part B1 of the Bronze Age UFO, Lagoon Monster Rubber Mask, volume two from Balmore, the most recent release. Bombas Prendon. You know but know about Bombas Prendon? Sure. They asked me to write the liner notes for that one. Okay. Well, this is brand just, new. I, no, they just gave me a new it's, archive. I know. It's reissue stuff. It's great. They were great. They well, mostly they, did cassettes. This is shit out of archive that they got some guy, got a radio show that in the D.C. area. He went through all the, like they got 6,000 songs or something, right? Oh, no, they got a ton. I mean, the thing is that it's a weird, that whole e-cleft scene. For, that's like Richmond, Virginia guys. Right. There was oh, a certain, uh, uh, VCU. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, no, that's weird. I was uh, there was that together stuff. forty years and maybe did five gigs, but recorded like motherfuckers. Oh yeah, no, I, I mean I reviewed some of that stuff back in the New York rocker days. Andy Schwartz. Yeah. Good old Andy Schwartz. Yeah. Uh, and then, uh, well, that was the nostrils of Everest, and then finally, something you gave me: magnificent Pudlians with Norwegian <laughs> wood Klingon. And a little Jonathan Swift reference there, and mixed him with some fucking. You know what? The, what they found orbiting Uranus, Klingons. Yeah. <laughs> and you know what they found in the captain's head? No. The captain's log. Oh, beautiful. I'm gonna, I'm gonna. Jesus. So look. Yeah. You, you didn't really get into the garage band thing, but you ended up uh, you you end up writing about music. When did you first write about music? Um, I started writing about music in like fifth grade. Uh, you know, I would like uh, I did a little uh, uh, typed up. My parents gave me a typewriter for Christmas in like '65 or so, and I so I would type up like a little one sheet thing every couple of weeks and pass it around to my classmates then. And it sort of went from there. Yeah, but what was the one sheet? Record reviews? Well, I wouldn't do really record reviews because I didn't have very many records. <laughs> but what was it on was the one like, sheet? What was on the fucking one sheet? I would I would go through like local newspapers and stuff and find out like what bands were playing in different places and just sort of type up about that. It was like just what, like, oh, yeah, like it like uh the, the Orbitrons are playing at uh the the uh, baggy knees. Yeah, so you're bu- giving your uh, <laughs> classmates previews of what's coming up, uh, shows they should see, gigs they should yeah, fucking so they should see. Although none of us could go out and see anything. Yeah, right. <laughs> I was like, but it was like, oh, I, I couldn't really figure. I thought it was interesting to do. It was okay. incredibly stupid, but you know, whatever. Well, you know uh, that gig you told me you went and saw. How that happened? What's that? Oh, the uh, they were just playing. The your thing is, our local, band was our opening lo- up, right? So you're yeah, going to yeah. Gigs well, by it was then. like the local. It was the local high school was, you know, doing a show. And, you know, in my town, if that meant it was an all ages thing. Oh, OK. okay so, I understand. So you could just go. I mean, the, uh, Did the it band make the one up. sheet. Did that gig make the one sheet? Uh, that was probably after I was at I was at a new school by then. So that was past my one sheet days. Oh, so you That's gave it was, up. You gave it up. Well, I did. I was trying to write for the school paper after that, but they would never really let me. <laughs> I got to write some reviews from in the, my senior Pedro I here. It was called the Four. Really? Ma- I wouldn't shit you, Byron. What did you review? Uh, uh, Frampton comes alive and uh, fuck. Uh, 
Maybe a Kiss record. It was in 1976. <laughs> it's my last year of high school. The, the paper, of course, wow. is called The Fore and Aft. It's, when Frampton Comes Alive came out, I was working for UPS. I was a pre-sort loader. And I had to work like loading trucks. I was a teamster. It was like four to eight every morning I worked. Whoa. Oh, and these guys, the, pre, the, the guys who did this, the pre-sorting stuff would play that fucking record like <laughs> really loud, like through the whole warehouse all the time. It would drove me crazy. Well, you can blame Steve Marriott because he stole his humble pie from him. <laughs> yeah, we're, yeah, we're yeah. At the, you know about that. We're at the end of the first out. August 14, 2021, this what Pete was a special guest, Byron Coley, hold tight for hour two. August 14, 2021, it's second hour watch from Pedro's. I'm going to think about this every day. I'm going to spot on my own fake street. You're going to have to understand. Coburn. Barriers. It's directly from a spot of beginning. Here it's your hunt. better antagonist when you are prancing this fortress is letting loose purely decomposed after hours i could appeal to you over there where it sheds go chase yourself and expand Down. I was asked to stand up. 
traveling this week, everything will begin with S. Dirt will begin with S. Radishes will begin with S. Destiny, prosthetics, and flotation will all begin with S. Big walnuts yonder will begin with S. Days darker than your nights will begin with S. High as a kite, bold as a beast will begin with S. Walled city fresh packs will begin with S. Come go cease, desist, tumid bodies implode will begin with S. Fatal jackoff on the moon will begin with S. Pop, 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 bebop will begin with S. And a god of the Vita will begin with S. The 19th through 23rd featherweight champs will begin with S. Westwood Ho, the beeswax will begin with S. Shit will still begin with S. dog kept staring at me, so I went through my pockets again. While I was doing it, I realized the guy strapped over the mailbox looked kind of familiar. Uh, so I asked him, hey, do I know you? He said, uh, well, indeed you might. Uh, my name is Robert Crisco. I'm the Dean of American Rock Critics, and I ask you as a fellow human to free me from uh, my canine bondage. Uh, my initial reaction was to go for my knife in my pocket, cut the guy loose. Then I realized that uh, Crisco was the man who had brought a grade... Uh, uh, you know, grade lettering uh, to uh, records, uh, allowing me to peruse a little bit of his career in my mind. I realized uh, this was the dipshit who thought that uh, Wings, Venus, and Mars uh, was superior to uh, the Sid Barrett solo albums, that uh, both Marlo Thomas and Bette Midler had made uh, LPs superior to Beefheart's Clear Spot, that, uh, you know, Big Star Third was uh, the equivalent of uh, Elton John's Hunky Chateau, uh, though not as good as Springsteen's Born to Run. Uh, consequently, I decided to give him to the dog. Uh, I took the butter pass out of my pocket, handed him to the pooch, and uh, off I went. We start off the second hour with te- Toothless Grin, and after our mindset, uh, Lucas Bell after that out of Sydney with ooh, ooh, oh, the parentheses, so that's in Spanish. Uh, Plasterman out of Ithaca. The New York uh, upstate one. This new one, Spiel Gusher, begins with S. Which, thank you for the vinyl version, you and uh, Brother Ted. Yeah. Bark at Bob's back door, Byron Coley. <laughs> so, look, you're trying yeah. to write reviews for the school paper. Yeah. By, the, at, by that time, had you written, I want you to tell me everything you know about Richard Meltzer. Um, I know, you know, I mean, the thing is, Meltzer was a, you know, I started reading him when he was writing for Crawdaddy. Yeah. Um, I didn't, I didn't really, I, I didn't have any contact with him until quite a few years later, oh, though. I, 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 he, I can imagine that. You know, I think like when he was, when he moved to New, when he was still in New York, I had some contact with him, like in the later part of the seventies, but I didn't start hanging out with him till like the like Vom era Detroit Street Yeah right by Peaks Yeah Hollywood Yeah I mean uh I mean the thing is I had I I would write him I would write him and stuff and he was like there were only a couple guys like when I was a when I was sort of starting as like a professional rock critic type thing back in the 70s most people who were older and established were really like 
hard to deal with. But <laughs> Meltzer, but Meltzer and this guy Mick Farron, oh, this yeah. English guy, were both like super friendly and nice and all that stuff. And uh, so I. You know, I, I just sort of would get in touch with them, and I sort of kept in touch with both those guys for a very long time. And then, you know, Meltzer's just like, I don't know. I mean, I think he's the, I still think he's one of the greatest, most underappreciated, like most influential writers that's ever. Not underappreciated by what? I'll tell you that. I love No, that, but, you know. I, understand, I mean, the thing I is. I understand what you're trying to say. Yeah. He just doesn't. I mean, I feel like his influence got picked up by a lot of people who yeah. never acknowledged him at Absolutely. all. Absolutely. Absolutely. Who became very became very popular. I mean, the thing is, when I really started writing, my stuff was at a certain point, it was like pure like fake Meltzer. And it was like, you know, like people say you should start like, you know, you, you start off writing, copying some person you like. You know, people start with a Hemingway or they, you know, whatever. Blue Oyster F- Cult or Creed's Clearwater Revival. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, a band does, does the same thing. You have to. You have to learn some of the like rhythms before you can start developing your own. Okay. And uh, for me, that was like Meltzer, like so, like clearly. And, and uh, can you remember you know, the first would, time you met him in person? The first time he really—I mean, I met him a few times in like things with like a bunch of different people there in New York. But the first time I ever really went up to him was like at a Vom gig in san francisco at the mabuhe and uh you know like sort of like you know i think it was maybe early 78 and uh you know he sort of like we he sort of knew who i was because we'd i'd written him a bunch and stuff like that and we sort of like we started sort of talking about different stuff and you know he was a very he was like a super funny guy at that point vom was doing this thing where they would throw out They'd be throwing out like all these T-shirts, like promotional T-shirts that they'd fucked around with. Oh fuck! They so would got... throw live cockroaches at the whiskey. Well, yeah, they did. I mean, they did the whole cockroach thing. Well, you know that was because of Turner. Greg Turner. Turner's yeah. Greg Turner's dad was the science supervisor for like maybe Ventura County or something. So Greg could get like a permission to go, like a card to go to this bug emporium in Compton. And buy like you know, Bronco worms or whatever. <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, have you talked to Raymond about that show at Kahuna's Bearded Clam? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's why Greg would never let the Angry Samoans play with Black Flag because yeah. he hated that show so much. Yeah, 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 yeah. When they threw the crickets out, you know, he was like, he was so. I would talk to him all the time when I was working at SST, yeah. and he'd be like, "I can't. Those guys suck." <laughs> And well, it was the cricket thing. I, 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 yeah, yeah, I can imagine. You know the way <laughs> human beings are. Well, I, I'm a big Vom fan. I should let the people. Richard Meltzer had a band called Vom with uh, Greg Turner people. Uh, so tell me about that first meet. So he knows who you are, and and what do you guys talk about? This is at the Mab. Well, you know, we were both like kind of drunk, and so I think we ended up talking about Claude Bessie mostly. <laughs> Kick boy, Kick boy face. Yeah. Because I was really curious because I'd been down in L.A. a bunch, and I couldn't, I couldn't figure out Claude at all. No, and, uh, but I'll tell you this. He was so kind. He would give you no, – no problem giving you – talking to you anytime. I got to say that about those days, all those people. 
that you could be oh, nobody yeah, well, and they would just rap with you. Wasn't that the coolest fucking thing? It's true, although I met – the first time I met Claude was under really kind of like bad circumstances. I had gone – I was at the Whiskey with this f- this friend of mine's band from Minnesota, the Suicide Commandos. Oh, yeah. And uh, so Claude wanted to inter- was going to interview them. And I was really pretty drunk. And I kept on like barging in this, this interview. And Claude was really kind of pissed off. Well, and I was like – so I started sort of making fun of his accent and stuff. <laughs> yeah, that's a good. And it was move. really like it was just like I mean it was a really bow you know bonehead move, but it was like he got he got really pissed off. And so when he would see me after that, then at stuff he would sort of like give me like a really he would be very un, you know like unhappy to see me. Anyway, did, it was did a, he know you were a writer like Richard did? No, okay. no. He just thought I was, you know, I was like some so, boza. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, I mean, I saw you as a rival. Now, now Richard, Richard never saw you as a rival. Now, did Richard ever talk about uh, similarity in his style and your style? Or did you ever, like, talk to him about I mean, I, that or apologize? I did, I did talk to him about it. Okay, I, did, I talked to him about it, and he said, like, you know, he said he would have never, con- he would never confuse us. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, you know. I said, yeah, because there were other people who were getting the same sort of rap, someone at that time, although I got it worse than most people. Like, there was a guy who bought New York Rocker when Andy decided to close it. Yeah. This guy bought it, and then this fellow named John Morthland, who was a, a longtime critic, took over the review section. And I had been one of the main writers for New York Rocker. And so I got in touch with him and go, like, oh, man, what can I do? Something? He was like, you're nothing more than a Meltzer imitator. Jesus. Like, okay. You know, I mean, I think that's, I think you're wrong, but whatever, man. It's like. Well, did he scissor you? Oh, yeah. I never, I never got a chance to write for him after that. You know, it's, you know, people have, the thing is, people really didn't like Meltzer in a certain way. Because he was just like, he was so loose. And he wouldn't. He wouldn't write. He wouldn't do what anybody wanted him to do. <laughs> you know, if you read some of his things, like a whore like it, like the rest, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they're just like he he kind of pisses on all those guys. Oh yeah, big like what they're doing. He just does. That. He just doesn't. He won't toe the line, and he doesn't really like. You know, the thing is, there was a point, I think, where he was so bored with what rock music had become. Because, yeah. you know, I mean, if you remember the, like, you know, the Hepcats from Hell show. I loved it. I mean, KPFK. Yeah, but he really, he really thought punk wasn't rock music, you know? He thought it was like a new type of music. Yeah. And he just really didn't, he didn't, he didn't think they were connected. And he was well, really I, so. I think it was wishful thinking. He didn't want them. To no, it, it, it was wishful thinking. Yeah. Same with me, same with me. Because it was a reaction, well, maybe not rock music, but arena rock for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Maybe not Little Richard stuff. I think he liked Little Richard, Jerry Lee Lewis, but arena rock. That's true. The thing is, that's rock and roll to him. Yeah, right, right. He always always made a big distinction between rock and roll and rock. I mean, the whole aesthetic of rock rock. is yeah, it's about rock. the dropping of roll, and then you get to this rock music. Like, what is that? Yeah, it's the, like, a, and, and then of course, if you got that, then you have the dean of rock. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
which was you the know, piece, Chris, yeah, the piece I played right before our spiel here. I know. I mean, Chris Gow, you know, like I wrote for The Voice, but Chris Gow would never let me write for The Voice after that, like, that Sonic Youth single that yeah. we did at Forced killed Exposure. Big dick, big fucking yeah. dick, right? Yeah. I killed Chris Gow with my big fucking dick. <laughs> and, um, and it was like, it was kind of a drag in a way because I, I didn't tell the band we were going to call it that. <laughs> it, was, it was just like when I got it, I was like, Chris Gow had been ignoring Sonic Youth as yeah, a band, yeah, yeah, yeah. like really ignoring them. And I thought it was like kind of jive. And so I was like, oh, well, you know. You know what? I'm going to get into this issue. Not, yeah. not, not particular about this, but what I've noticed nowadays compared to those days. But first I want to, uh, something you and Thirst did called Dapper. Mm, mm-hmm. Let's do it. Okay. She just be guitar on.
Rock for Pedro show. That chunk of music started and ended with Dapper. First uh, end of the bookend was uh, Painted My Teeth. Then No Joy with Here Tarot Lies, If Bawana, Radio Slaves. That's Al Margolis out of Chester, New York, up the river. And then Dapper Live, War Sucks. Okay, what about the power of the record reviewer in those days with printed reviews compared to the power of the record reviewer nowadays? Well, there was a period where, you know, people paid attention to record reviews because there were magazines or there were, you know, it was mostly magazines that people sort of trusted um, or there were fanzines or whatever. Um, and I don't think that that's true anymore because it's all, you know, I mean, when I, I mean, I write a lot of like, uh, one sheets for records. And now when I see reviews, most of them are just rewrites of the one sheet, you know, <laughs> that whoever put it out. It's like, not like nobody wants to be, nobody wants to have their own opinion anymore. You know, nobody wants to be the guy who says like, oh, no Nirvana blow. <laughs> it's just like. And then be like, oh, my God, I like said Nirvana were no good. You know, it's like nobody wants to nobody like people just want to ratify other people's opinions. Now, back in the day, people would like, well, the people who were interesting and the people who I, I like their stuff and the people who anybody paid attention to were writing about things that either that they were just saying what they thought about these records and it made sense or it didn't. And people could judge a writer by how consistent they were in their thing. They might disagree with the person. And then so the guy would give it a bad review and he'd go like, oh, the reason that guy gave it a bad review means I probably really like it. You know, it doesn't <laughs> there's not that anymore at all anywhere. Well, um, well, Richard told me he got disillusioned kind of early on because he thought he was in the trenches with the band. And then, it, no, you're shielded him for the label. Yeah. 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 So, well, do you think any band's careers were ever hurt by bad reviews? Um, yeah, I'm sure that there were. Um, you know, I think that bands that really got dismissed who weren't very well known, um, you know, had to fuck up their bookings. I mean, it really had to. The thing is, I mean, if you give me, if you ask for an example, I'm not sure I can give one except maybe like Sir Baltimore, Sir Lord Baltimore. <laughs> <laughs> Who I thought were a pretty good band, but never. I mean, I saw them play at Greenwood Lake around '72 or so, and I thought, you know, like a singing drummer thing. It was like yeah. cool, you know. It was like, but they never got a good review anywhere. And Rare Earth, Rare Earth, the only uh, Rare Earth band for Motown. Yeah, they had the singing yeah. drummer thing. Yeah, Rare Earth, not really one of my favorite bands, although <laughs> I did like the way that they packaged that album, so it looked like kind of like an army duffel bag. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, but, but I, anyway, I, I got you on the tangent. We, you, we were talking about uh, record reviews uh, ruining bands. I, I asked that because it seems like the bands that sold a buttload of records, a lot of them got negative reviews. Well, you know, I mean, the classic, of course, is Led Zeppelin. You know, who John Mendelssohn like panned. You know, in Rolling Stone, the first one. I mean, I like he thought Grand Funk were better. Yeah, yeah. Well, look at the Stooges. I mean, Jesus. <laughs> I mean, talk about some revisionism on, on some record reviews. Oh, my God. Oh, it's true. <laughs> no, it's 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 true. I mean, the number of people who like the Stooges early on, you know, it's like, 
you know, Meltzer's review of the Ungano show is like a classic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, and, you know, I mean, the thing is, though, Lester Banks, his, like, review of the second record was like, you know, he, he sort of re revived himself. Uh, but, you know, I mean, the thing is, like, the Stooges were hard, so hard to figure out, and they didn't, that original band didn't really tour that much. So the thing is, if you're just listening to the record, I mean, that record was when I was first in college, like in like 74, that record, the first album was cut out and in the available in the bookstore. And I, I get it for 99 cents, like as many copies as I wanted. And so I would regularly buy it for people as a birthday present. And I would give it to them and they would they would people would say, like, is this like a joke? <laughs> I mean, like every song sounds the same. <laughs> Say like, well, you know, we will fall. Sounds quite a bit different. You know, yeah, they no, go like, no, it's like every song's the same. I'd be like, well, well but I did think Funhouse, the, the you know, loose TDI, yeah. and uh, down on the street. I, me and D Boom thought it was the same song played different three different ways. <laughs> well, but, but we really liked it. That wasn't a bad the thing. thing. Is, so that like, wasn't a bad thing. <laughs> no, I mean, like, I mean. I would have agreed to a certain extent that a lot of the songs on those albums sounded similar, but like the lyrics were great. The riffs were great. Like what's the problem? <laughs> you know? Well, because I, I think there was a lot of peer pressure in those days. And that's one of the points I'm trying to get at. Do you think that record reviews kind of reinforce this shit? You know, the group think on the verdict of a certain Oh, they definitely did. Because but the marketplace, like, sticks. I mean, there's bands that got terrible reviews that sold buttloads. Well, I mean, have you ever seen a live sticks show? <laughs> off, off the charts, baby. <laughs> you know, they're fucking better than Kansas. I bet. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, and I don't say that. I don't say that with too many bands. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, I mean, a lot, a lot of it... I must say, is live shows. And the thing is, look, if you just want to, like, smoke a joint and go to sleep at a show, what better than sticks in, like, yeah, a big yeah, auditorium? Yeah, yeah. yeah. What like, I'm saying so, is maybe we're free of that fucking moral dilemma because it doesn't seem that reviews carry that much weight. Nah, they kind of don't, you know? I mean, it's... And it's... It's good and it's bad. The thing is, there's so yeah, much that, stuff that's, that that's, that's exactly what I'm getting at. It's kind of good and it's kind of... It is what it is. It, yeah, there's no, I mean, there's no getting past it. it. It's problematic, though, if you don't have at least a few writers who you can, like, look at. You think, like, oh, they're at least consistent, and I sort of get what they're going about. If you're, you know, like, who's got the time to, like, like download every band camp thing, you know, or listen to it? It's like, man, there's, like, a million bands now. And the way that some people describe them, you'd think, like, oh, this is going to sound great. And you put it on, and it really sounds like, oh, this, this band should be called Pudge, you know, it's do, like. Do you think a part of a, a record review is, voc uh, toolbox, vocabulary, whatever, is the idea of genre to uh, to give a shortcut on the listeners or potential record. In a box? way, I mean, it, it's very problematic. Yeah, it really is. But the thing is, it's it's very. It depending on what sort of length of review you're doing. It's a good idea, I think, to do it if you really know what you're doing, because you at least give somebody an idea of what area it's going off into. Or at least and, the way your mind is dealing with it. 
Yeah, you know, I mean, yeah, no, it's true. Because right, that's all what I've always got from your reviews. It's a personal experience. It's beautiful. It, you know, we, we for me, it is. I talk up on the next hour because we're out of time. We're at the, yeah. the second hour, August 14, 2021. Dish Wap special guest, Byron Coley, Old Type Hour 3. August 14, 2021, it's the third hour of the Watch from Pedro show. There's a fire burning, and Mingus is on the box, and as so often happens, when Mingus is on the box, I am thinking of Dee Boone. The music of Mingus and the soul of Mingus and the volume of air displaced by Mingus rarely fail to bring that other great American into my mind. The vision of Mingus on the eve of eviction, firing his shotgun into the ceiling of his loft with a grin of surprised delight, reminds me of a show at the T-Bird Roller Dome in Fullerton. The stage that night was a too-high pile of risers, stacked in a way that was none too stable. When the superheroines played, you didn't really notice how wobbly it was. But when the Minutemen played, they'd move around quite a bit, and every time D. Boone shouted motherfucker into the mic, he'd jump into the air, and when he landed, those risers shook like crazy. D. Boone shouted motherfucker a lot, so the stage shook a lot. And every time it shook, D. Boone got the same little grin Mingus got when he emptied his shotgun into the air. And the music of Mingus as the music of D. Boone blasts through the dark reaches of the universal nothing, setting ablaze brains that have been so long seized by cold they have become their own engines of nada. For the collective sake of whatever is left, let us hope the future of this world is never one in which the match that is Mingus and the match that is D. Boone have been lost to our brains and to our souls forever.
Hyper prism, man. Deep, big, nothing like the Earth. It's unlimited. 
great direction to the heavens. Each spaceport is a heaven. In that, it is a haven. The music of the outer darkness is the music of the void. The opening is the void, but the opening is synonym to the beginning. This is an indication, interpretation. Some music is a specialized interpretation. Some music is of synchronization, precision. Every light is a vibrational sight and sound. It is rhythm and harmony with beams, rays of intensification and projection visibility. Music is light and darkness, precedent of vitality, stimulation extraordinary. Black is space. Well, sometimes. The outer darkness music, it becomes more than music. The void direction to the heavens, in this thought, it reaches an incredible plane. Each spaceport is a heaven, the potential of what can be. In that, it is a haven, done physically, without precedence. The music of the outer darkness is, except in the present designed action, the music of the void, of the eternal, endless universe. The opening is the void, every action is rhythm. But the opening is synonym to the beginning in all its interrelated being. This is an indication, interpretation. I have said before that the music is the words. Some music is of specialized interpretation, and the words are music. Some music is of synchronization precision. It is all for you to understand if you can. Every light is a vibrational sight and sound, and for you to feel regardless. It is rhythm and harmony with beams. It is a feeling that is a sign of beingness. Rays of intensification and projection visibility, the simulated movement. Music is light and darkness is the key to oneness. Precedent of vitality of that which is on. Stimulation extraordinary, still it is the key. Black is space. Sometimes music becomes more than music. The outer darkness and this thought reaches an incredible plane. Void direction to the heavens, the potential of what can be. Each spaceport is heaven, done psychically is without precedent. In that, it is a haven, except in the presence designed action. The music of the outer darkness, of the eternal endless universe, is the music of the void, Every action is rhythm. The opening is the void, but the opening is synonym to the beginning. In all its interrelated being, this is an indication, interpretation. I have said before that the music is words, and the words are music. Some music is of specialized interpretation, is all there is for you to understand if you can. Some music is of synchronization, precision, and for you to feel regardless. Every light is vibrational sight and sound. It is a feeling that is a sign of beingness. It is a rhythm and harmony with beams, the stimulated movement, rays of intensification, and projection visibility is the key to oneness. Music is light and darkness of that which is on, precedent of vitality, till it is the key that does not lock, any door, stimulation extraordinary, 
there is no entrance. There is only the presence of being where the awareness dwells, where the coordinating action axis. The knowledge music is different from the wisdom music in the finer distinction of presence. Wisdom includes intuition as an ever-present companion, prescience in a sort of diagonal, symmetrical way. In a way, creation is a transitional form of intuition. Black is space, the outer darkness, the void direction into the heavens. Each spaceport is a heaven, that is, it is a haven. The music of the outer darkness is the inside music of the void. The opening is the void, but the opening is the synonym to the beginning. This is an indication, interpretation. Some music is of specialized interpretation. Some music is of synchronization, precision. Every light is a vibrational sight and sound. It is a rhythm and harmony with beams, rays of intensification and projection visibility. Music is light and darkness, precedent of vitality, stimulation extraordinary. It must not be forgotten that music is a language, a language all its own, a language whose foundation and projection is melody, rhythm and harmony, the extension of consideration. Music is an advanced form as in composition, sculptures, shape and form, arrangement, length, depth, and width, message, meaning, impression, strength, degree, beauty, greediness, badness, all dimensions of being, every place there is music, chaos is music, harmonious peace is music, silence is music, there are different kinds of silences, in silence there's a world of its own, in a lesser but not least important sense, silence is an integral part of all music, in a fractional sense, and judged metrically, we must not forget transportation. Transportation always results in a change of color. Behold the vastness of the music.
Watt for Pedro Show started the third hour off with Ode to Burns, Byron Coley, and Sizzling Tedley. The sketchy side of town from Manuel Armida and Orbut. Hope I pronounced that right. Sunburn Hand and Byron Coley. I think I know the drummer man, John, right? He played with Thirst for a while. Oh, yeah. Now I think yeah. he's a road boss for uh, Jay Masks. He is. Okay. You want to finish up your thoughts? That yeah, you know, the thing is, like... The second hour there, I'm sorry. I mean, if you recall, I reviewed the first Minutemen single. Absolutely. Right? And I compared you. I said I thought there were similarities to the urinals. Yeah. So it's like... And that I mean, band to me, was that, huge impact on us. Huge impact on us. But it's like that, to me, makes sense. If you can say something like that, you're pointing people... Like, people who were... This is what, 81, right? Or right. 80, I don't know, whenever. People who were looking for punk singles, if they were reading punk single reviews, if you said something like the urinals and people knew what the fuck you were talking about, that gave them like an idea of like what was going on there a little bit. It's like, oh, this doesn't sound like this other, you know, it's, it's different. I, I mean, I just think that that's... You when know, you make a comparison, it should be sort of important, and it should give people some kind of an idea where to place something, you know? Sure, That's, sure. Well, you know, location, location, right? Uh, what about overseas? What What do you think of The Wire uh, or Mojo? I mean, I wrote for Mojo for a while, and then they sort of stopped dealing with most American writers. It's, they're, you know, I mean, like, how many fucking times can you write about, like, a Sid Barrett session? <laughs> It's like, it's kind of insane. I mean, I mean, there was one point, like I offered them, like I said, I've got this 15,000 word, like really good piece on this heat, the English band. Sure, sure. And they were like, oh, we did something on this heat. I was like, no, I like, I talked to everybody who's still alive. I mean, I really have this like intense thing. They were like, ah, I think we've sort of covered this heat. Like, I don't even want to see it. And I was like, you know, I'm okay. But like, it's just weird. Like. They, I mean, you know, when they first started, I thought they were sort of interesting. And then after about 20 issues, they started doing the same, like, basic issue every time. And what about you The know, Wire? The Wire? I mean, I mean, I've been writing for it for a long time now. I've had my column for over 20 years. That's right. But you um, also had a column in Spin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's... That did last I mean, 20 years. That did not. My <laughs> column spin lasted about, I don't know. You know how the spin column ended? No, tell me. Richard Gare, the guy from the, sure. he was in the LA Reader and stuff like that. He was the editor then. And I was talking to him about my new column. And Bob Guccione, who has an English accent, right. like came in on the line and goes like, hey, mate. <laughs> I was like, what? What? Like, like, who is this? And he goes, oh, this is Bob. I was like, oh, and he goes like, you know what? I don't think the underground really exists. And I was like, what? And he's like, yeah, you know, I don't think it does. And then he hung up. And that was like it. It was like, oh, no more underground column. And it was like, this was about, you know, like three months before Nirvana hit. And it was like, yeah, okay. Yeah, whatever. I don't know what you really do in a situation like that. But, you know. He was like, no more underground column, no more underground section. So, 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 you know, you don't really see validation in writing for some of these people. Right? No, but it's like, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's nice. The thing for the thing that was really good about doing the spin column was I could write about 
like you got I could write about anything I wanted to write about. And kids who got their like all their information from a Walgreen in southern Illinois could buy a copy of Spin magazine. They could go in there and they could read about, oh, Richard Grossman, you know, Halo of Flies, like, you know, like whatever. Richard Grossman, I first heard about him from Richard Meltzer. Yeah. You know, I mean, I used to work with him. He had me do a gig in his honor after he passed away. Yeah. And taught me about improvisation. Richard was a great guy. Yeah, we owe Richard Meltzer so much. much. Yeah, we all do. Look, um, you gave me this thing, some more magnificent pussies. This yes. is uh, Alpha. It's easier to slip through the cracks than it sometimes appears. In the late 1970s, I did it for a good long while in San Francisco, which was a real goddamn cheap place to live. Before it got taken over by Hong Kong money fuckers and their slaves. Longest steady gig I had when I lived there was selling plasma at the Alpha Plasma Center down in Mission before corrupt yuppies ruled the place. It's not like the reception area of any cheap-ass medical facility or the welfare office. They had a big sign up on one wall that spelled out our mission. Seven dollars first time in week, eight dollars second time in week, ten dollars eighth time in month. The idea was that they always need more plasma, which is what binds whole blood. They use it for burn victims and plastic surgery disasters or whatever the fuck else. And a healthy human regenerates the stuff faster than skin. So while you can only sell blood every so often, you can dump plasma twice a week. And so I did, for a year or two anyway, until it made me needle shy. What you'd do is go in and lie down on some table, or then siphon out whole blood, and spin it around for a while. The red cells and other shit would centrifuge the blood. At this point, they'd hook you up with a bag of red stuff and a bag of Exciting to find out 
They originated in big cloth bags, worn by shuffling drunks who emerged in the pre-dawn dark from plain-looking delivery vans that stopped on the corners of various suburban neighborhoods, burping unseemly turds one by one onto deserted borders of paradise. So that we could wrap these dumb things with rubber bands and slip them delicately into the lattices outside those little mansions as though we were clever elves or big thirsty squirrels who were delighted when our van would dump us for lunch. At the portal of the local cut-rate liquor store where we would receive an advance of a dollar for each hour we'd worked thus far. The balance to be paid by check, one week hence. If we could but find the company's unmarked mission doorway one more time, when it was light, we would have to squint. Right at the mouth of Golden Gate Park. I only had 
couple of weeks. But I was glad when I first got it because I'd just gotten kicked out of the apartment where I was living because I had mistakenly pissed on a roommate's younger sister. She'd been on the road following the dead and she was sleeping in front of the fireplace, which you have to admit could be confused for a toilet if it was dark and you were very drunk. Anyway, I had taken up residence in a tree near the eastern end of the park, so it was quite a convenient job for me. The only problem was that it totally sucked. I was about the only person working there who wasn't from the Philippines, and the manager, Manny, thought I was slow because I couldn't understand the training videos, which were a fucking tag-along or some similar tongue. But I didn't care that much since his evaluation meant I mostly got to stand around in the parking lot holding a broom, trying to make sure non-customers didn't take advantage of our, lot, our parking lot's convenient location while visiting Golden Gate without a Big Mac in hand. This meant I could smoke at work, which was okay, but Manny was a fascist about drinking on the job. Even though drink and smoke are natural allies, he would have none of it, not even beer. Like I said, the job sucked, but at least it meant I could, go, I could show employment, which meant I could get a room at this SRO on the corner of Cole and Stanion for 65 bucks a month, which was an excellent bargain since I could just make that much money selling plasma, which was a much better job than McDonald's. Although it was fun to walk around to hate my uniform late at night, or to wear it to some punk show. Hate life just full of choices. Sprawled around a bus stop, pointing at my window. 
themselves than I was, despite their ragged-ass condition. One of them held what looked to be a bottle of gallo white pork. Pointed to it, then drained the bottle's contents into his mouth. And tossing it into the garbage can, he then pointed to his head and yelled, Brain food! Touch the cilia, and I look up carefully 
my weight on the top of the spikes for a little bit. But I look at them closely and it doesn't seem like they're sharp enough to easily pierce your skin. At least if you do it right. And my plan is to do it as right as any man in a similar position has ever done it. I snake my right foot slowly up to the top of the nearest spike and gingerly begin to shift some weight to it. It doesn't actually feel too bad, so I'm heartened. I start to move the weight of my left foot up to the spike as well. But as I do this, the bottom edge of the sill, uh, with the bottom edge of the sill even closer, I can feel my body beginning to peel away from the wall. As the size of my ass begins to exert gravitational pull, I fall straight back, my hands raised in empty clinging gestures. And as I sail towards the sidewalk, landing on my back, while the towel opens and flutters around me, providing a small cushion for my buttocks, but little other protection. Just then, the end-junior train stops mere inches from where my head rests on the sidewalk. I am dazed, but not unconscious, so I just lie there as the folks get off the train and carefully step around me in my towel. Then I get up, wrap myself in the towel, and go upstairs, where I kick the door in. I mean, what would Jesus do? I decided to leave SF in the fall of 1979, although I did return in the new year. I have usually told my friends the reason I left was a guy I knew told me he'd get me a job washing dishes in Ketchum, Idaho, where I could also meet Marielle Hemingway. But another part of the reason I left had to do with a bottle of red vermouth, a punk chair with a heavy five o'clock shadow, and a pair of hospital slippers. I will spare you the details until we meet again. <laughs>
Watt from Pedro Show Last Music for this edition. That's Magnificent Pussies with Alpha. Something live. Uh, then Sam Lock Ward out of Iowa City featuring Matt Rebeleski. I have been pulped. Don't know that verb. Uh, Carl 2000 with Message from Carl. And finally, Hell Ride East. This was a very important gig for me because I was coming back from the sickness. It's with Jay Mascus and Murph. L.A. Blues, uh, our, our take on it. We did a whole, you know, I just got out of this uh, sickness and from dying and shit, and I just wanted to do Stooges, so I asked Jay to ask Murph, and we did some of my gigs, and over here I did with Perk and Peter. We're still doing it. In fact, next week we're going to do one here in Pedro. But uh, that was very important, so thank you for giving me that. It was great to hear that again. So yeah. tell people about, uh, enlighten them to forced exposure and feeding tube records. Uh, well, you know, Feeding Tube Records is a label this guy Ted Lee sort of started about 15 years ago now. And uh, there was a point, he, yeah, he's based out in Western Mass. And there was a point about 10 years ago, I guess, uh, Thurston and I were trying to do a new record store. And so we started working with Ted because he wanted to do one too. And we sort of joined forces for a bit. And uh, then Ted was interested in getting the label a little bit more geared up so we would give them <laughs> if we didn't have to put the records out ourselves we were more than happy to provide them ideas of records that would be good to do <laughs> but before that uh, forced exposure what was his name uh he was a uh, jimmy johnson guy. jimmy jimmy yeah. good guy. yeah well jimmy and i did uh you know jimmy had done forced exposure as a hardcore fanzine that started in the that's right that's right like early 80s when i was out in california still and uh, in fact, so you I, were right, I think East. you were writing for the reader because you did a review. Of yeah, yeah, I was. I had, what I had makes a column in the start week. fires. You also did yeah, a review yeah. of us at the Antic Club where you said I had a bunch of no D Boone had a bunch of bowling balls in his pocket, and then I had a bunch of <laughs> yeah. hungry gophers or some shit in my pocket. <laughs> yeah, I was doing all that stuff, and I, I had a column in the week. That's why I remember. I remember meeting you. You were playing pool at the Antic Club. Yeah. Well, I mean, I used to work at SST, too. Right. Well, that's later. This is before that, even. Yeah, but this is like 80, that's like 83 or yeah, 82. Right, right. I don't know. The first 82. time I met you was that, that, uh, it was that Black Flag show, uh, with you guys and what, DOA and that version of, uh, Santa Monica Civic. Yeah, Santa Monica Civic. Right. Right. I was up on stage. Right, you guys and, were, uh, throw, uh, guys, uh, like, uh, people were throwing all those coins Biscuit, at you. Yeah, Biscuit, uh, and DOA, he, he didn't think. He, he says, so Minutemen's one of those Devo bands, right? They got a drum machine. Say, no, no, we got Georgie, man. We got no drum machine. Right. One of those Devo bands. Yeah, man. The sunlight was still like... coming in the windows. Meryl dressed up like Adam, man. That was a gig. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's no, right. I, was... I met you. But I remember having a big, long rap with you at the anti-club at the, where the pool oh, yeah. tables were. Yeah. Well, no, we used to go there all the time. It was like, you know, but yeah, you know, it was like... I, so, that was a fun. So with you and Jimmy, up, you turned the, the fanzine into a label. Because yeah, well, I, I ended up putting out a Minuteman 7-inch without, it's called the Georgia CP. Right, right. Well, that was sort of the, you know, that was the, yeah, it was the, yeah. No, we did. It was like the, I think you you were like, oh, well, we could never do the, the thing with Meltzer, so I'll give you this and whatever else. That's right. But that was that was the thing that I did with, uh, you know, with my, me and my wife really did with Jimmy in once I was back in Boston in like '84, and uh, you know it was a fanzine. We did it for a long time, and then, I mean, Jimmy still does it by himself as a uh, 
as a distributor and stuff. Right. So he does all that stuff. Um, what about your, you know, getting near the end of the show here. So what, what are your plans right now? Um, well, just, you know, just working on a bunch of writing stuff. Thurston and Matt's Gustafson and I just finished a free jazz book. And uh, so that'll come out pretty soon. Did you ever think of a bio? Doing what? Autobio? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no memoir. <laughs> <laughs> no, although my, my daughter's making me sort of write one for some stuff. I have a, there was a, I've been working on a novel for a long time off and on that Kim sort of like goaded me into working on. And, you know, whatever. I still do a lot of poetry stuff and, you know, it's different Jack stuff, whatever. Is there um, a place on the internet that people can find you? Uh, not really. Okay. I got a Twitter feed. That's about it. Is Dapper still going? Well, we haven't done anything for a long time, but that was basically like me and Thurston yeah. and anybody in my family and anybody in his family <laughs> and anybody else <laughs> we could conjure into it. Uh, it was good, you know, but we are, I mean, the thing is our, we sort of ran out our thing. We originally were only going to do covers for tribute compilations. That was our, <laughs> that was our idea. That's a we formula. Did, That's a formula. Yeah, we did Beefheart and Holy Modal Rounders and all this stuff like that. But that was enough. Reinterpretations. Well, man, it's been a big honor to have you on the show. Truly. Yeah, it was Thank great. Thank you for being man. so kind to me all these years. And I, <laughs> I love your writing, and you did develop a style of your own, and Richard should be proud. Oh, well, thank you. That's what I think. All right, man. Thank you. And you, I am still in the trenches with you, Brother Byron. And you, sir. Okay. People, it's been the August 14, 2021 edition of Why Pedro Should Keep Your Powder Dry.